for any kind of large customer base to be able to use the blockchain efficiently, high throughput's obviously required because without that, you know, you have a very poor user experience where transactions are severely delayed or never completed or fail. There, there can be very interesting reasons for L2s to exist. I think traditionally, most of the reasons now have been to scale out other stacks that just kind of the base layer doesn't scale that that much. The, the issue, of course, with that is the fragmentation of the, the ecosystem, right? The user experience is suboptimal when I've got to manage assets uh, in one ecosystem and then transfer them to another. I know it's you know not horrible, but the, the bridging time takes takes effort, takes uh, takes a lot of user uh, cognitive you know uh, <laughs> overload. Having that together in one ecosystem uh, is is really really important, and especially you know when it, with a network like Aptos, we don't have those kind of constraints on the bandwidth, uh, the throughput, and the latency aspects where. But we tried our, our peer-to-peer transfer test and we saw peaks of 30,000 transactions per second, which is definitely the highest kind of verifiable test result uh, across the industry. Avery, uh, thank you so much for rejoining me. I, I feel like it's been some time since we last sat down together in Palo Alto and did the podcast in person. A bunch has happened since then, but really excited to do this podcast. Uh, I think the Aptos ecosystem has been making tremendous progress. You've been doing a lot of interesting things on the technical side. So I, I think it's going to be a great chat. It's my pleasure to be here with you again, Logan. Always a pleasure to chat. Amazing. Well, let's jump right into it. Uh, it it's, I think, been slightly over a year since we last chatted. Uh, Aptos is live now on mainnet before it was not. Maybe just a quick recap of how things have been going on from the ecosystem level, what cool things have you doing from the technical side? Uh, love to dive into it. Perfect. Uh, thanks for starting off with that, that point. You know, it's been a very eventful, uh, slightly over a year since we last chatted. Uh, we launched our network in October of 2022. And for those of you who, who weren't following at that time, it, it was a pretty maybe the fastest network launch of all time. We formed our core team in February uh, and we went to market in eight months later. We had three uh, incentivized test nets. Uh, we had a bunch of other testing. We had a lot of developers coming live with us on, on day one and super, super excited about the teams that have, that have put in the blood, sweat and tears to get us to where we are. Um, and, and, you know, at that point, we, I think we've, we've had hundreds of developers uh, building on the, on the platform and testing it Congrats. out. Uh, our, our thesis has always been to iterate as we learn more about those developers that have been moving uh, the platform forward. And so just taking, you know, a, a quick a side note is that while we had worked on DM for th four years before this, uh, uh, it had never been tested at scale with a large number of developers in different kinds of applications. It had been tested in a very small context around money movement and um, remittance, remittance transfers. So being able to kind of see in the wild what people want to do, how people want to use Move, allows us to kind of iterate and evolve that language in many ways that we didn't even think about. But with this developer community, it's been amazing to push forward new language features like higher order functions, making sure the prover is accessible to uh, the, the community to make sure they're they can reduce their time from ideation to getting to production in a safe manner. Uh, and we've also seen massive partnerships, I think, from, from Aptos in, in the enterprise space, all the way from... Uh, companies like Lotte in Korea to those like Microsoft and, and of course the US and just seeing this ecosystem come together really really quickly and also delivering on the technical promises that we've we kind of made early on we said like we're going to have a very aggressive launch schedule we're going to do these things we're going to be the one of those you know few if, if not any crypto team that actually hits the milestones on time and then what we promised after that was rapid rapid upgrades and so we've seen in the last year is new cryptography primitives coming in quorum store being launched uh, to improve throughput we've seen uh, massive improvements in the framework upgrades that have come and token v1 token v2 standards that are kind of uh, responded to developers' needs and and uh, and uh, opportunities in the space. So it's been a very fruitful year. Uh, we're not done yet, though. We have a lot of things to do. The other point I want to raise is we started to build some interesting products in the space. And so on our on our anniversary of our mainnet launch, we launched uh, Graphio. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to play around Graphio, but it was this interesting collaborative art drawing canvas uh, where we wanted people to kind of draw whatever they wanted to to commemorate the, the one-year Aptos mainnet anniversary. And the response was uh, was definitely exceeding all our expectations by a lot. We had more than 600,000 wallets drawing simultaneously over a 36-hour period. Uh, and it was absolute chaos. If you try to like draw something, immediately be overwritten. It was... It was the beauty of the internet and, you know, chaos and life and people all wrapped into one. And the outcome, um, you can go to graphio.art if you want to see it, it was just 
it was beautiful in its own way. It was kind of like really representative of what we thought humanity was like, you know, chaotic, beautiful, and, uh, and not what you would expect uh, uh, for sure from the start. That's fantastic. Uh, amazing progress. I, in eight months, that is, that is truly impressive. That's quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we have a really amazing team here, uh, super hardworking, focused, and uh, it's not a huge team, but it's definitely a lot of motivated, you know, people that want to see a public utility come into existence that's going to be built for the long term. And I think that mission pulls us all together and keeps us uh, pushing, pushing really hard. 100%. And uh, even in my time at Tesla, those small teams, I feel like were the true ones that were pushing things forward. So uh, amazing to hear that's happening internally as well. I think kind of staying on the topic of upgradability, I remember that as like a core focus uh, when we first did our initial podcast. Can you maybe dive deeper into some of the things that you've seen or kind of that you mentioned earlier on the upgradability side, maybe that you like either didn't notice or that you saw uh, that like you couldn't fit into the early uh, prod network and just needed to get shortly live. How has the network kind of evolved since b being in production? Yeah, so we have a AIP process or Aptos kind of improvement uh, proposal process for upgrades that anyone in the community can propose. Things like delegated staking were actually built out by uh, one of the staking operators, which is really neat to see. Um, and anyone can contribute to, towards that and give feedback and then, you know, watch that code commits kind of go into production and then see a timeline for it. I think, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that the network's able to upgrade really, really rapidly from the time of kind of AIP inception until the point at which it goes live, usually in the order of, you know, a, a month, maybe two at the most, depending on the type of upgrade and the complexity behind it. Um, but some key things that have come out, the delegated staking, uh, but I'd love to get that done before me net, but it came after, and that's totally fine. Um, things like a quorum store, which is a really great improvement on, you know, how we think about the, the first kind of uh, step for data dissemination at scale, um, where validators can now send blocks of batches of transactions to, uh, to be um, kind of preserved and, and maintained before they're off to ordering uh, was launched in July. And that launch has been phenomenal. No issues, just seeing massively higher throughput uh, that's available in the network. Uh, and also our crypto libraries, I think have been like amazing upgrades that have kind of come in to support things like Roth 16, Bulletproofs, um, and also things like uh, confidential type tokens where you can send out a token uh, between, you, know, you have a transaction between you and I, our, our addresses will be uh, known on the chain but the amounts transfer will be hidden. Um, and so, you know, those kind of things just come, you know, as users uh, kind of, and developers kind of make their requests or start to submit what they think is important to them. And, you know, the, I think the object standard is also very important. So as we saw, people wanted an object uh, type standard in the in the framework, uh, which was a, a differentiating feature from others. Uh, we did it at the framework level rather than the core system because we can actually upgrade those things much faster. So we went from object V1 standard to object V2 standards, we understood, more of those use cases and more of what people wanted to see and being a bit more um, uh, biased and opinionated about, you know, like this is the way you ought to, you know, a mint token, this is the way you ought to transfer them. This is the standard that we think is going to help the ecosystem get the most growth uh, out of it. And so uh, I think it's, it's been an amazing set of upgrades that have come on the network. We have a lot more coming, I think. So we've started to discuss on-chain randomness, which is something I'm really, really excited about. We'll come up with some really cool name for it, uh, project name in the future, but and I know this has been done in other networks to some degree, but the difference about this in Aptos is that it's going to be stake-weighted randomness. It's going to be something that's available for every single transaction. It's not going to be gameable. Um, and uh, this allows, this kind of primitive allows, especially game developers, to produce kind of the, the truly, like, you know, when I open up a treasure chest, what is my random odds of achieving certain kind of outcomes? I can't cheat the system. I can't game it. You know, that we've seen some issues with that in NFTs that have happened over the years where people kind of understand the algorithms, they can kind of uh, bias the election towards their results. And this is going to be a printer that completely changes the game when it comes to um, any kind of uh, randomness entropy that comes into the system. And so there's a whole host of applications that are excited about building on that. We're planning a, an amazing uh, hackathon just specifically around this feature. More to come in that space. Amazing. Uh and I think you do an exceptional job as an engineer speaking to the engineers, but maybe for those slightly less technical gifted, what are even perhaps speaking to engineers, why, what features are you like feature sets? Are you most proud of like the Aptos community cultivating? And for those that are even uh, less technical gifted, 
what would your kind of recommendation be to view the Aptos ecosystem versus all the other modular L2s, L3s, uh, L100s that are in the space? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's a that's a good set of questions. I, maybe I'll ask, answer the last one first, which is that, you know, L2s, um, there, there can be very interesting reasons for L2s to exist. I think traditionally, most of the reasons now have been to scale out other stacks that just kind of the base layer doesn't scale that that much, right? So like Ethereum. And and I think, you know, it, it does work. You know, we've seen base come out. We've seen others that have, have launched recently. Um, and the, the issue, of course, with that is the fragmentation of the, the ecosystem, right? The user experience is suboptimal when I've got to manage assets uh, in one ecosystem and then transfer them to another. I know it's, you know, not horrible, but the, the bridging time takes takes effort, takes uh, takes a lot of user uh, cognitive, you know, uh, <laughs> overload. And, you know, it, it's just broken compared to the system we have today in our current experiences, right? When I go to online banking, if I had to like, you know, transfer funds to another bank, wait seven days for those funds to be transferred and then be able to use them. And that also have a lot of risk where that transfer can be hacked or my funds can be lost and, you know, a lot of things can go wrong. I, I think that's, that's definitely a concern. I think uh, where having that together in one ecosystem uh, is, is really, really important. And especially, you know, when it, with a network like Aptos, we don't have those kind of constraints on the bandwidth, uh, the throughput and the latency aspects where everyone kind of build together and just share a part of this decentralized database, uh, but have that kind of composability still maintained. I fully like, to me, the magic of kind of Web3 slash crypto was that you're taking like these heterogeneous systems, making them like one unified standard, like everybody agrees upon that standard. Uh, it's interesting to me now seeing like, there's definitely some applications for modularity, but that we're going back to kind of like these fragmented ecosystems and then we're trying to like put them back together. It seems like uh, we're, I'm glad the experimentation is happening, but it seems it seems more difficult. It seems like we're going back to kind of the web two like silo databases where like the web three promise was like being able to touch all these interesting objects and in, within a shared ecosystems. Yeah, I I, I understand like there's a lot of experiments going on with modular blockchains today. Uh, it's a different path, I think, ideally to get into the same path, which is a very small number of ecosystems where these ecosystems are really the ones that developers have have, have uh, gathered around and, and feel like they're they're supporting their needs and use cases most efficiently. I think the most the best example of that today we see is in cloud computing, where there are kind of you know four or five major cloud providers that take up you know eighty percent or ninety percent of the, the the traffic and the usage and the revenue. Um, and, and the rest are kind of having very, very small uh, uh, tail use cases. And we'll see that over time. So that's one path to getting there is to say like, well, I don't know uh, what the execution environment ought to be. I don't know what the programming language should be, but we'll kind of support all of them. And then we'll see what shakes out over time. Yep. Our, our stance has been always the opposite of that. We want to be very opinionated. We want to make sure that we support the use case really, really well. Um, the, anal the analogy I give to this is kind of like the Linux kernel. Uh, it's a it's a monolithic kernel. It is something that Linus kind of decided up front was you know uh, really important to him as as he making progress in terms of being simple and performant, uh, and kind of giving up maybe a little bit of the like hey here's the other things people can build on top of it. I mean there are definitely things like printable modules and all that for some kind of composability, but very different than the microkernel approach. And I think Linux has done really really well because of these design decisions. Um, it is important to have modularity at the implementation level, though. So the ability, I, I think we've talked in our last podcast about Aptos being this pipeline uh, chain of execution. We have data dissemination, you have ordering, you have parallel execution, uh, parallel storage for, for efficiency reasons, and you kind of have the proof generation after that. This kind of natural modularity allows us to move each of those components forward in its own individual uh, standpoint, allow them to test these individual components. But when you have a modular blockchain-based approach, you know, you also have to think about how does the interplay of testing work? Like if I want to test how fuel and move interact together on, on Celestia, for example, it's, it's you know, becomes much more complicated to pull in those testing opponents, test for every single commit that happens in either of those ecosystems, whereas being very opinionated about it, saying, look, we, we've, so far we've heard from all our developers, move, the way that move is working on Aptos is really, there's no complaints about it. Once people start using it, they're like, wow, this is amazing for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm able to get you know, a lot of more productivity out of it. I'm able to deploy my code faster. You know, I, I'd love to have this feature and we can go ahead and add that feature really, really quickly. This is a space where we can move faster than others. Like in the EVM space, you know, it's obviously got a lot of traction out there, but the downside of that is that 
and able to move the VM forward and able to move the language forward, it takes a lot more consensus building and it's going to move at a very different pace. Whereas in our ecosystem, once our developers kind of explain some of the things that they are looking for, oh, we really need the, the move prover support to kind of cover this, you know, this, this particular aspect. Those changes can be done really rapidly and we can all iterate together much more quickly. I think the same kind of you saw Rust as a language kind of grow over the last five years. Uh, it's been a very, really rapid progress because uh, the developers are so passionate about it and they keep pushing the feedback into it, whether it's going to be, um, you know, adding, adding new functionality or new kind of language features. Uh, those things all happen rapidly. And we see the same thing kind of happening with Move within the Aptos ecosystem. Amazing. Really amazing. In terms of when I kind of think of Aptos, I think about what you guys have done with Move. Can you talk a little bit around some unique things that you've built with Move? I know uh, ultimately, as you mentioned, supporting some of the other programming languages, but I think when I kind of peer into my crystal ball, I see Move ultimately becoming a predominant programming language, if not the predominant programming language for Web3 assets, because of some of the protections that it allows from some of these early iterations of programming language. Can you talk about that and specifically the Aptos version of Move? Absolutely. So uh, just going to history of Move, uh, it, of course, it was built uh, at Meta um, 2018. It was kind of started off there. And I think, you know, obviously the, the principles make a lot of sense today, which is how do you kind of prevent programmers from making those easy mistakes? Programming for a smart contracts platform is so different than a generic programming language you know, which is fine to kind of write some bugs, fix those bugs in production, roll forward. Those kind of allowances are are much more costly in a smart contract language platform. So how do we kind of push, you know, fewer, you know, fewer mistakes into the code? How do we maybe limit the set subs, the set of things that can be done um, while still allowing programmers to get their work done, you know, as efficiently, as quickly as possible? Um, but it never was tested at scale. And that's why we love about, you know, bringing the the Aptos network to life. We're kind of the longest running, you know, uh, move chain out there, like major move chain, uh, you know, since 2022 of October. And we've gotten a lot of feedback since that time. And what our developers have told us is that um, they want to see, uh, they really love the fact that the move prover works for everything in Aptos. And I think, you know, we're the only move variant where the move prover can cover, you know, all the objects being uh, created, the global storage, and one thing neat about that is that the framework itself is is kind of fully, you know, formally specified and also proven by the Move Prover, uh, which is really, uh, really neat and gives programmers a lot of confidence in that the libraries they're depending on are, are highly trustworthy, uh, in addition to, to auditing, of course. Um, I think the other thing that's really cool is that we've added things like higher order functions. Um, you know, we also support code upgrades in place. Uh, you know, backed by either, you know, multi-sigs or other, other kind of known primitives, but that allows us to kind of iterate and improve things as, as, as time goes on very quickly. Um, the other thing that I think is really exciting is, you know, move, you know, people don't realize this is a lot of kind of legacy code move uh, from the VM and from the compiler. And so, you know, why we've made massive improvements to support block STM really, really efficiently. And I think, you know, others have benefited from this in the ecosystem, uh, uh, we um, we also are looking at move uh, uh, efficiencies uh, going forward in, in developing the new VM. And it's a big endeavor. It's a big effort. But to kind of push forward and like, you know, how do we really optimize the VM to work well with the underlying infrastructure? How do we take advantage of all the underlying like uh, 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 implementation of parallel execution at the blockchain layer? from Move and kind of co-design this, like almost like a hardware software co-design, um, you know, which is obviously important for, for, for uh, traditional systems. Um, and then from a compiler-based approach, as we think about adding new features, as you think about adding the kind of the, the usefulness of interfaces in the system without, you know, allowing re-entry attacks, which is something that Move prevents very well. I mean, we see those every week happening in, in the EVM world, sadly. Um, that has to be solved uh, really, really soon. Um, we're we're starting to propose new 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 uh, new ideas there and find that kind of balance where programmers can reuse code as easily as possible uh, without having again to to deal with the reentry problem that we've seen seen elsewhere. So, in in summary, just really listening to our developers, listening to what features they need, uh, building out the best developer experience possible. We actually added a gas profiler uh, yesterday. We kind of announced that, so you can use flame graphs to kind of see where gas is being used in your programs and optimize accordingly, depending on your, your, your optimization metrics. Um, and then the last thing, of course, is going to be how do we kind of continue to build on this theory of parallelism uh, out there and, and really drive throughput to the point where, you know, you have very, very uh, low costs that are going to stay low 
you know, pretty much because you'll never hit those throughput limits in the system. Some of my favorite topics are parallel processing and throughput. So I would love to dive into each of those. Uh, yeah. You mentioned uh, a new VM or VM version two. Can yeah. you maybe dive a slightly deeper into that? What were kind of like some of the early learning lessons, just seeing the network in production and what has been improved on with version two? Yep. So the, the early version of the VM is kind of designed for single threaded execution. And so I think most people that use parallelism for the VM are going to kind of spin up multiple VMs and kind of execute those. But there are more optimal ways to do this, you know, exploring how does a single process VM, you know, kind of work in a multi-threaded environment that reuses code libraries and the way we load and, and cache and, and store operations can bring massive efficiencies. And so that's one project we're taking on. It's going to be highly complex, uh, highly, uh, you know, highly uh, challenging, uh, but we, we believe it'll lead to massive, massive wins in the VM space uh, from a performance aspect. Uh, from the compiler side, I think that one is, is really interesting because unifying the compiler between the move prover as well as the language, which they've been separate for some period of time, uh, allows for us to iterate much, much more quickly on language features and also making sure that prover support is, is there for them on day one. Um, and so that's, that's a really exciting effort. And I also, uh, I think the compiler right now is in beta. Uh, we're going through a lot of testing with it. Uh, obviously, we want to take that very, you know, very seriously. We don't want any mistakes or bugs that come out of the compiling, and we'll, we'll definitely encourage the, u the user community and developer community to, to help test us on that with us. Yeah, the the parallel processing it, it is, is tricky. I guess have there been any things that you've seen uh, just from the production environment today that you're like, ah, this is. Uh, maybe some real, real world randomness that I was not anticipating people using Aptos like this. And now we kind of have to make some changes. I think what we've seen so far for the parallel processing side is that things have worked surprisingly well. Uh, we haven't, you know, we always, parallel processing is very complicated. Uh, and the, I think the biggest challenge is that complexity, you know, introduces a lot of potential for bugs. And so we thought we'd see some bugs in the parallel processing unit as as things rolled out, in, even in testing and in production, we might have missed something. But surprisingly, we've been pleasantly surprised to see that everything has worked very, very smoothly. The first thing people always see when they see a bug is like, oh, it's part of the parallel processing. But it never is the parallel processing uh, to our experience, which is which is really interesting so far. That's uh, good to, news to hear. I, I think uh, <laughs> hopefully... Uh, I'm excited for everybody to eventually get to kind of multiple client implementations just because those bugs are tricky. But in terms of, uh, you also mentioned kind of expanding upon throughput. And I think this is kind of a underappreciated aspect of Web3. In my mind, we're kind of historically going from low throughput blockchains, transitioning my analogy from dial-up to broadband and now fiber optics and the blockchain equivalency can you expand upon why high throughput is so important for the blockchain ecosystem as a whole, and then go specifically into what have you been doing uh, in the Aptos Foundation to, to really make that the best high throughput ecosystem? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so first of all, I'd say for any kind of large customer base to be able to use the blockchain efficiently, high throughput is obviously required because without that, you know, you have a very poor user experience where transactions are severely delayed or never completed or fail. So it just limits the scale of what applications can be built on top of the blockchain if you don't have a high throughput blockchain. The other thing, of course, is that the price starts to become a real issue, right? So as as the throughput limits are reached, most systems are going to drive prices higher. So this demand-based pricing, you know, makes also the number of applications that are usable in the blockchain just fall to a very, very small number. And so we believe that high throughput is is required uh, for you know large uh, enterprises, also large applications to be developed and built there with high confidence. You know, it's very much the same problem of what happened in cloud a while back. You know, so if you think about cloud in the early days, uh, a lot of large companies like Meta and Facebook that I was at were, were concerned. Like, you know, what if we if we put a large part of our infrastructure on on Amazon or on on Google or others? What if they drive the prices on us up eventually over time, right? Uh, and you know it's not secure enough. You know it might not actually support our workloads. They don't have enough machines, or these type of machines that we need to support our workloads. And now we're going to be constrained, and we're going to have to have a poor user experience. Um, and so those very valid concerns. I think those concerns have been largely addressed today um, for most use cases, except for the most extreme ones. Uh, and I think. Honestly, I think Aptos is there today, right? So we can actually build some of those very, very extreme, like high throughput use cases on top of Aptos. And we'd love to kind of share 
you know, what what we've done in that space, you know, uh, with respect to what we call preview net uh, um, uh, right, right now, if that's okay with you, Logan. For sure. Okay. So one thing about Aptos that's definitely different than other networks is we take our co-development process, you know, very seriously uh, from a testing perspective. Every, every code review has two commits, uh, uh, sorry, two reviewers. Every uh, code review has unit tests, regression tests that run on it um, uh, before committing. We also have nightly tests that kind of uh, spin up clusters and run a whole bunch of security tests and Byzantine fault tolerance tests, performance-based testing. Um, and then when we finally get ready to make a release, we will, of course, deploy to DevNet, then TestNet, then MainNet. But for features that are kind of more... Uh, let's call them a little bit more experimental, we will we will put them to what's called a preview net as well. And so preview net is a really cool exercise where we get together with the, the node operators for Aptos and we mimic what the mainnet looks like in terms of the number of nodes out there, uh, the staking distribution, uh, as well as the, um, uh, the node operators and the geographical distribution. And then we run a series of performance tests as well as drills onto um, you know, what the results might be. And so we, we finished our second, um, you know, a preview net. And I, oh, I do want to pause here a little bit and talk about benchmarks to some degree. Um, in March, uh, we actually uh, released a, a study on, um, you know, performance. Uh, we talked about, you know, from our point of view, the industry is lacking a couple of things. One is what is a framework uh, for repeatable testing? We, a lot of people put out numbers, but they don't put out the ability for people to really independently run those tests and kind of repeat those results uh, that are going into production. Um, the other thing is that we need to also produce the same, same thing on temporal benchmarks. Those benchmarks need to be re reproducible, they need to be kind of well understood. And over time, they need to cover a whole suite of tests, uh, ranging from you know, different kinds of use cases you have in the blockchain, money movement, uh, NFT minting, um, maybe some DeFi applications. Uh, those kind of things need to be put as a test suite the same way that you have TPC benchmarks or databases. Right? So TPC uh, benchmark databases allow different kinds of databases to compare their performance across different types of workloads. Unfortunately, our, our industry is still in a very nascent phase where people throw out numbers. There are sometimes theoretical numbers. There are numbers based on unrealistic uh, assumptions. These numbers are, are very hard to reproduce, if, if impossible. And so we started our first phase of that in, in March of this year, kind of putting out, hey, here's the numbers. Here's what we're testing. We're testing peer-to-peer uh, -peer transfers of funds. Uh, we're testing in an uh, environment of this, you know, 100-plus nodes like mainnet across three different regions. And here's the exact hardware that we used on GCP to be able to have you replicate that same experiment. Um, and with that, you know, we think that's the first step towards that. Now, PreviewNet 2 is taking that to the next level. We, of course, kept the same setup. We have the same, you know, a bunch of node operators that are participating. We have the same kind of stake distributions that mimic mainnet. And this one, we actually added a couple of new tests, which we found to be very interesting. And I think by the time this podcast was live, all these numbers will be present and people can dig into them more detail. Um, but what we saw was, was incredible. Um, and we'll have to go through those results of why. But we tried our, our peer to peer transfer tests and we saw peaks of 30,000 transactions per second, which is definitely the highest kind of verifiable test result uh, across the industry. Really, really proud of that uh, and, the, and the work that the team has done to do that. The other thing that we've done uh, also was to see like how sustainable can we make, like, you know, throwing up the peak numbers is great for sure. But we also want to see like how sustainable is this over a longer period of time. And so we ran kind of like our, our load tester. Uh, uh, for a whole 24-hour period, kind of throw, throwing out the maximum throughput we could. Even the load tester itself is actually starting to fall behind a little bit time because it's, that system needs to be improved a little bit. Uh, but what we saw was we could actually we could we could run you know more than two two billion transactions in a single in a single 24-hour period, which would which was you know kind of, kind of mind blowing uh, for context. Uh, just just for context, VisaNet processes about 150 million transactions per day. So we can, you know, sustain well over, uh, you know, 10, 10, 12, 12 visa nets uh, on Aptos uh, in this in this preview net setup, uh, which was which was really, really cool to see. And, you know, it was a pretty constant. You'll see the graphs later, but they're a pretty constant workload. You'll see them pumping along. Everything is great. And then we turn off the experiment uh, after 24 hours. But it's, it's cool to see that kind of sustainability. The other thing that's a really neat result uh, that we saw was. Um, Look at we took a look at NFT uh, minting and the NFT minting is really interesting because there's a sequential component of NFT minting when it comes to the uh, sequence numbers, right? So uh, you know you have the 
NFT uh, version one, two, three to say a million out there. And this typically is a huge problem for parallel processing uh, engines to be able to, to, to figure out. And, you know, like, how do I make sure I don't mint beyond the supply? How do I make sure these are all numbered in order? Um, and uh, so we've developed this technology called aggregators. And so for those of you that are familiar kind of with, uh, you know, MapReduce, there's a notion of um, anything kind of certain types of operations are aggregatable. Uh, they are um, things like addition, for example. Uh, um, uh, don't need to be kind of uh, computed upfront. They can be computed later on in the process. And with aggregators, uh, we'll have a very set, good set of detailed posts out there. They allow us to make these sequential operations of kind of like iterating a counter, mostly parallel. And by doing that, this allows us to do NFT minting at very, very high throughputs. And so our previous experiments show kind of around uh, maybe 1K per second of minting of NFTs, which is, is still pretty good, obviously, for a sequential engine. But with aggregators, we get 10K per second sustained. Wow. And so what this means is you can mint, uh, you can mint basically, I think a million NFTs in just 90 seconds. You can mint 5 million NFTs in eight minutes. You know, it, it's it's a crazy, a crazy result. And we are, you know, we're excited about that. This is, you know, different kind of, uh, this, this again, there are NFTs minted with a fixed supply as well as uh, an index number associated with those. Um, so these results, I think, are, are pretty pretty amazing. They're just about you know uh, maybe eight months after the previous results we had for PreviewNet, and I think also more importantly, we start to see the standardization of benchmarks coming out. Where we'll we'll we're again produce the benchmarks or produce the setup. Anyone can rerun them uh, on the same kind of experimental hardware that we we used, and we'll we of course be running more PreviewNets in the future to kind of keep developing and, and pushing forward uh, in the benchmarking as well as the kind of open uh, production requirements that can come out of it. I would love nothing more than the industry to agree upon a set of standards, but uh, that is very hard to do. I think, I mean, frictionless capital has kind of taken a crack at it. I always need to kind of improve how to do that, but very happy that you guys are publishing something that can also be reproduced because I, I think that's also one of the challenges. But I mean, one from the engineering side, it's hard to determine if you're a smart contract engineer on where to build your application, because it's not super transparent. And then from kind of the investor side, there's always these fabulous claims about a hundred million billion TPS that don't come to fruition. And so I am definitely in the corner of either reproducible or some set of standards that the industry can agree upon because it would really push, I think the entire space forward. Yeah, I, I mean, we are 100% alignment with that. That's why we're trying to do our part to push forward these reproducible benchmarks and make sure that everyone can use them if they want to. They, they're able to re recreate them for their own systems um, and, and produce similar results. And we, we invite the industry to really join us in this, in this journey towards more transparency around performance. I appreciate you guys doing that. In terms of, I would say, things that can utilize high throughput or kind of transitioning from the infrastructure to itself, to applications. One hot area has been AI. Uh, everybody likes talking now. Uh, the, the interesting thing has been drop out of crypto, pivot to AI. But now I, I think we're back to maybe drop out of AI, pivot back to crypto. But I, I think you have some interesting viewpoints and in the intersections of the two industries. I, I would love to dive deeper a little bit into those. Absolutely. So uh, just some context, maybe I dropped out of AI to work on crypto. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Meta, I was uh, working on data infrastructure for seven years. So a lot of data infrastructure is actually doing feature generation, uh, preparation, and also some algorithms. Uh, I worked on um, matrix factorization and, and, and some other things uh, related, to, related to ML uh, in the past. And so it is really interesting to see these industries kind of collide and, um, in, a, in a good way. Uh, and I think they've been really, really help each other a lot. So, you know, we've we've also been exploring this with uh, with Microsoft, who's really, you know, yeah, been involved in AI, of course, with their open AI efforts, uh, with what they've been doing in Azure, uh, with with Dolly and, and with ChatGPT. Uh, and so, I think there's a couple of angles we could talk about this in. So, one thing is we've been definitely working on some interesting products alongside them. One is going to be the Aptos Assistant. Another one is going to be kind of TBD, but it will be released hopefully in the coming uh, coming. Uh, weeks or months, uh, which which is going to be a consumer-facing product. Um, but just more broadly than the space of AI uh, and, and, um, and blockchain, like there are so many different things that are interesting about this. One thing is we see the advent of kind of content that comes out there, and now we, we're not sure what to trust. 
uh, as as people, right? Like we see a video of of some horrifying footage. Is it real? Is it fake? Um, or we see a, a politician's message uh, or something that's just unbelievable about like this politician doing something really silly. And it's, again, hard to tell. Like, is this, this has been doctored? Is this real? And so this is where blockchain can really help. Uh, you have the ability to kind of verify, attest to what the content uh, uh, provides. So if, if for instance, um, you know, I have a message and I'm a political candidate, uh, I can go ahead and kind of sign something that says on chain, like verifies my ID, also shows that this is an attestation that I, I support the statement. Um, uh, and, and someone can see that attestation, uh, you know, on a, on a decentralized ledger like, like Aptos and be able to kind of have high, high confidence that I am standing behind that message that this is, you know, truly uh, uh, my statement that I want to make. Similarly, I feel like the world has to move in this direction because to. there's there's so much content now being generated. I mean, even uh, just the pictures, uh, even some videos now. Exactly. You're like, it, it's getting harder and harder. And you can definitely see as it continues to ramp uh, how good the technology is going to get. It doesn't seem like there's really any other option than the intersection between blockchains and kind of that private key that you're signing. Hey, I actually verified this is me and I post this message. Exactly. Uh, and I think on the flip side too, it's not that these companies are, they're doing AI want to be responsible about it. They want to also kind of let people know that if I done an image with Dolly, uh, um, that this is a Dolly generated image, right? So having that lineage to say like, you know, this was generated by Dolly, you know, don't think this is real or whatever. And um, kind of even specifying the parameters, maybe that was used to generate it or the version of software, all our possibilities and, and those being stored on the blockchain as is lineage and kind of proof of audibility, uh, I think is really, really important for everything that's going to be generated in the future. And there are billions of pieces of content that are generated a day. And that's a great use case for a high throughput blockchain, obviously. 100%. Any areas, one other area specifically kind of in the investment landscape uh, that has been starting to heat up is kind of this Airbnb for your graphics card per se, where uh, you can rent out a graphics card on one of these decentralized networks. Any thoughts around like decentralized computing uh, used on blockchains or this category? Yeah, I, th I think it's a very interesting idea. At the same time, I do think it's going to be very challenging to disrupt. And the reason why is there's a lot of it. it would, there's a lot of uh, kind of. Uh, uh, natural monopoly type features when it comes to cloud computing, um, whether it's going to be buying servers in bulk, buying cards in bulk, buying data centers and power in bulk that make it very hard for decentralized uh, infrastructure to compete in. It needs to acquire a mass amount of capital to kind of, uh, you know, get those economies of scale and and fight against these kind of natural monopoly, monopoly tendencies. And so, you know, I'm very hopeful, uh, of course, I'm always an optimist, but it's just going to be a big challenge, I think, for for us to go down that path and, and make substantial progress there, just given that the the, uh, the current uh, parties are, are well entrenched and they have those economies of scale. Yeah, it's remarkable how many GPUs now you actually need to do like a large neural network training. The inferences, I would say difference, maybe you could potentially do that in a more decentralized fashion, but training, I mean, those <laughs> GPUs are co-located, they're interlinked, uh, all co-located, and you still take long times to actually train those models. Yeah, I think maybe the one thing that, you know, those systems can go for those, like the, the less distributed type training or the kind of training that doesn't require high network speeds. And so, you know, there's always an interesting, you know, going back to when my data had on, there's always this interesting trade-off of like speed versus like compute power and like, you know, also data amounts like 10x data does not yield 10x better results, right? So there, there, there are probably use cases when it comes to training and inference and machine learning that work well on, a, on smaller subsets of hardware. And though, for those, actually decentralized infrastructure might make a lot more sense. I'm fascinated to watch. Uh, hopefully uh, we can see some of those built on top of Aptos. In terms cool. of kind of getting that technical talent into the space, I think there's obviously a lot of smart contract engineers that have kind of waded into the water over the years. Historically, they have started with like the EVM ecosystem predominantly because that was the first smart contract platform. I think one thing that I've observed, it's very hard to convince other engineers, whether it's the tribalism or just being uh, comfortable with one smart contract 
platform to another, it's hard to go from like a different programming language per se, or at least a different VM. Uh, that is also a challenge. And so I think one place that I'm super interested in is just how we bring more adoption to say like the Silicon Valley of the world or all the hundreds, millions of engineers that are not in these smart contract ecosystems yet. How do we bring those in to expand the pie of talent within the ecosystem? It's a great question. I think one thing we do is we start earlier. Uh, so for instance, we're all, I think the foundation is holding a uh, IIT event in, uh, in Bombay with a with a series of like a lot of students in terms of uh, how building out some really cool technology teams uh, and and applications on Aptos and getting them familiar with Move from the from the from the beginning is definitely going to be helpful because once you're you know you've seen like what Move can do uh, and our and the, especially the Move variant on Aptos you, you're probably not going to want to go back to anything else and that's that's the that's a big part of our efforts the other thing is going to be just having the developers tell that story. And we've seen parties like LivePeer come over. We've seen parties like uh, SushiSwap from the EVM space come over to Aptos and when, being the first non-EVM chain, I think has been really, really exciting for them. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they, they get a lot of benefit from that. Um, Pancake as well. Uh, having those developers tell the story and like what they've seen as the differences and the advantages of building on with Move and Aptos has been something that we've, we've definitely seen help the developers get much more excited about the platform. Yeah, it's it's a slow trickle. And I, I it's funny because in the bull markets, unfortunately or fortunately, number go up is often the, the bat signal for everybody to come look at crypto again. And uh, I'm interested to see this next crop, hopefully uh, with um, asset prices continuing to go up more broadly in the crypto ecosystem, that uh, that brings in more engineers, right? And the other thing, of course, is just getting many more of our our um, our counterparts in the, the non Web three space to to yeah. come over, right? So the more and more we make this feel like just a traditional database to them, right? It's a JDBC connector or whatever. Um, you know, yes, it's decentralized, obviously, and yes, it has different characteristics. But you know, from a throughput perspective, it looks you know very similar. It's giving you very high throughput. It's giving you very good latency. It costs a tiny amount, but anyway, so does renting your MySQL server from Amazon. Um, the more it starts to feel like that, I think we'll start to see those developers starting to understand like, hey, these are benefits I can't get anywhere else. I can't get randomness, uh, like true randomness uh, in a decentralized fashion from, but, and I need that from my application, or I, I need this ability to have this immutable ledger type thing to, so, to make sure that what I generate as content can be kind of understood the lineage of it and whether it's AI content or not. The more that that happens, I think the more we'll see the natural kind of evolution from kind of traditional developers move into more Web3 applications. Fully agree there. It's, uh, I hope more people come into the ecosystem and continue to experiment with it because I think now, uh, I mean, maybe like, do you think ultimately we're at that point where the engineers can kind of like just tap into it or are there still a couple technical changes that need to have happen to make it seamless? I think it's getting close. I think it's, it's like, again, from a throughput perspective with the pre numbers you have from PrevueNet, like that can satisfy the needs of, if it can satisfy the needs of, of 10 visas, you know, and you know a whole bunch of other things and Twitters, I, I think you that that kind of throughput is, is, is fine there. Um, I think from a you know, same latency perspective, you're getting sub-second latency, you, you can get, you know, most of those use cases done there. Um, if you need developer features, they're coming out within a month or two at most. Uh, those things are all there. Um, I, I think we're getting close to that. And with, I don't, we haven't talked about it yet, but we have Identity Connect in, in Aptos that supports social login. So making the login experience much easier um, where you're not having to click through so many links and buttons and, and do scary things as a user uh, but we're getting really close, right? So the more and more it starts to look like traditional, like kind of internet uh, access, internet applications, where you log into a site, uh, like I log into my bank account, I do some interactions, I log into Amazon, I make some purchases. We'll see that adoption uh, and as well, the developers coming with it. Yeah. In terms of kind of world presence and where you think adoption is heading, I recently kind of, went to Stanford blockchain, uh, spoke there and then got the opportunity to go to Asia for the first time. I was, uh, 
in Japan, got to go to Korea uh, and their South Korea blockchain week. And then unfortunately didn't make it to Singapore for a token 2049, but uh, got to visit that side of the world for the first time. Is that an area of focus for like the Aptos ecosystem? Is that a region of the world that you're excited about or where more broadly have you seen adoption come from uh, since mainnet has launched? So we've definitely seen a worldwide adoption, which is great. And, and definitely in places that we didn't expect, whether it's going to be like Russia, Ukraine, Korea, China, um, Vietnam, um, and, and of course the U.S. And we've seen builders come up from, from everywhere. What's really interesting, though, about Asia and Korea specifically, though, is that we see large enterprises really taking a hard look at different technology stacks in the Web3 space and, and taking faster kind of moves than we see elsewhere. So partners like, uh, you know, uh, Latte Group are, are working with us, uh, which is the largest retailer in, in all of Korea. And you know, we'd love to see the largest retailers in the U.S. and other places start to start to look at blockchains more seriously. Um, and and so with that kind of different kind of culturally minded uh, entities and, and that are willing to move, take, you know, move, move on the more faster end of the spectrum. We love that. And we, we love the fact that they are, you know, picking the best technology stack out there in, in us and, uh, Excited to see like what happens when other entities watch what they can do and then want to kind of replicate their their advancements out there. And so definitely, you know, excited to see Korea be a, a huge, huge, uh, important uh, region for us. Asia in general being important for us, but also companies like Microsoft, uh, our starting partnership with them around building different kind of products uh, is also important. So we're, we're, we're definitely everywhere, uh, but we definitely see the Asian market uh, moving a lot quicker uh, to adopt Web3 and blockchain in even the biggest enterprises. And that's really, really encouraging for us uh, in Aptos. It's interesting when you look even at kind of like trading volumes, Asia is very active um, outside in even a much larger market than the US market is. And I think that trading then leads into experimentation on chain, whether that's NFTs or just saying, hey, let me try to click around on different blockchain application. And I think that experimentation phase is really is what is continuing to needed, not only on the application side, but users willing to kind of jump through some of the hoops, at least today, while there's slightly higher friction and that frictionless, that friction gets removed over time, being able to experiment is important, not only uh, for developers, but also the users. Uh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And just seeing that there's different parts of the world that are much more amenable to using blockchain, whether it's users or developers, and ideally both. And sometimes it's different, right? Sometimes you'll see some countries have a great number of developers, uh, and but not that many users. And sometimes you'll see the inverse where it's a lot of users and not that many developers. And, um, you know, we, we definitely are, are looking uh, to, to encourage both, both audiences uh, into Aptos and, um, you know, working very closely with teams on the ground in, in those areas. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a fascinating market to watch and uh, definitely one to keep your eye on. I think in terms of when you look forward to the future, obviously you're working on multiple different priorities with the updated runtime or virtual machine. Uh, some of the things with abstracting logins, uh, making that a little bit more simplistic. But if you had to like highlight the top technical priorities or things that you wish you can like snap your fingers and have in like the Aptos ecosystem today, what would those be? Ooh, this is a good question. Um, start from a technical side. I think we definitely want to see the aerators make their way to production. We think that that is a very interesting and unique um, feature that uh, others will uh, hopefully adopt over time. Um, and uh, the other thing is we've actually put out a paper called Shoal. Uh, it is an archive. Um, it's actually also been uh, accepted to a conference, but we'll, um, you know, we'll kind of have more details on that later. Uh, unifying the BFT, kind of traditional BFT leader-based election protocol with a high-throughput DAG-based protocol and maintaining both the high-throughput and low latency has been a challenge uh, for a long time. But we, we've definitely found some interesting breakthroughs here and, and document a lot of those in Shoal. Um, we also have even more breakthroughs that we've not yet documented, but we'll, we'll write another paper on those in the coming in the coming months. Um, and those are going to be kind of really even pushing the landscape further. So we're you know while while you know 30k TPS and, and max throughput and sub-second latency is is great, we definitely want to keep driving those even closer again to traditional data database out there, where 
where companies now don't have to think twice about like, is this going to support my needs for the future? Absolutely. You'll never get to this use case. Um, so that that's really important. And I think the other things is just, again, focusing on things you can't do elsewhere. On-chain randomness, no Web2 product supports that, um, that kind of source of entropy for randomness. Uh, and this is always a concern for for gamers and for even other kind of markets where where that's really important to drive on. Um, multi-party computation, uh, privacy libraries, uh, cryptography, all things that are really, really important for us to continue to evolve and develop over time as well. And, then, and as you mentioned, the, the login experience, the fewer clicks. Um, social login is, is a great step forward. How do we then think about management of these social accounts? You know, uh, that's really, really easy for users. Like today, in your Bank of America or your Wells Fargo, you have a checking account, you have a savings account. Most people can kind of handle moving money from one place to another. You know, it's got to be that easy for for crypto, right? To, to think about like my, this is the, the thing I use uh, on a periodic basis. This is what I'm willing to put, you know, at risk to some degree. Um, here's the protections I put in place for each of these different accounts. And this can actually over time become much better than even what my Bank of America offers because I can't, you know, put limits. I can't control the limits easily. Uh, on what I want to do. I have to kind of go with what they they're impose. Um, and so being able to do it on the blockchain, imagine where you have wallets that have customizable limits, where if I'm playing a game, any transaction under you know one one unit uh, of whatever the, the gas cost is, is going to be auto-signed. But anything above that, I have to ask for authentication for it. And so making that a very frictionless experience um, and then allowing the controls to be, you know, suggested but you know ultimately user controlled i think is i'm saying that something that really advanced the industry going forward so i think all these things like from a systems perspective to a user perspective and also as we kind of highlighted uh to a to a language perspective and language tooling perspective so the the things like aptos gas profiler new vm new compiler new language features um as well as more more parallelism being put into the system we're really excited about what's coming up in 2024. Uh, it's going to be pretty amazing. It, it's very impressive. In terms of like, since mainnet has actually launched, I have you found like any particular part of the tech stack with blockchains being harder to scale than others, whether that be in like data dissemination, scaling throughput, uh, the different workloads on the virtual machine, not being as paralyzed as you would like. What like unique insights have, or even like on the storage aspect as like throughput continues to ramp? Yeah. Um, any things that you've been not caught off guard, but uh, uh, you surprised by? Uh, I think the, well, I'll, I'm not sure there's surprised by the right word, but I'll definitely show, happy to share some insights here. So one yeah. thing that got us that massive win on the uh, throughput side recently was storage sharding. So, a lot of systems, including ourselves, store in a single RocksDB instance, and then all allowing us to go to multiple RocksDB instances and, and store that state across different uh, storage instances is, is trickier to manage for sure. But it, it did lead to really, really great outcomes in terms of throughput. And so, you know, I think while we're the only ones who do it today, this is probably something that others will, 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 will do as well in the future. And this is also the first step towards not just storage sharding on, say, a single, single machine, but you can imagine instances where you have now large storage devices hooked up to it. You can start across multiple devices. You can start across multiple machines. This is this is something like a, a great step in that direction of where our ultimate vision is, which is a validator will become more powerful uh, through more cores or through multiple machines uh, or through even disconnected pieces of hardware attached to it. Now, what's important is to make sure that these machines can be run by a series, you know, in order for decentralization to work, it still needs to be supported by different kind of cloud environments so that nothing is like, you know, either you have to run a supercomputer or you, it's a very, only one data center that can support this kind of uh, infrastructure. That's, that's not going to work out well for decentralization. So finding that balance of, you know, what's the right kind of hardware combination that makes sense for decentralization that also allows us to get very, very high throughput and low latency in the system. So uh, one thing we actually started to do is run some experiments of, even sharding across multiple machines, execution-based sharding. So a validator, again, taking the same number of validators in the system, but increasing the compute power of each validator by making each validator like one, two, three, four machines as opposed to one is one way also of scaling the system. And so we started to run some experiments there and um, our definitely our initial thoughts was, you know, once you go from one machine to two machines, it's actually slower because that network communication starts at an overhead that's much, much heavier. 
But, you know, after you kind of hit like two, three, four, five machines, you start to see now some gains. And then um, I wouldn't say it's, again, surprising, but that's kind of what we've seen and observed in our experiments. And uh, we'll have more of those experiments coming out uh, in the future days, uh, Logan. I'm excited days, for those experiments. Months. I always like the tech papers. I mean, I think as like a blockchain nerd myself, I love reading about the either benchmarks uh, that preview net ultimately put out, uh, really understanding the nuances, because I, I think whether you're an investor, a builder, anybody that is now trying to learn about the blockchain ecosystem, it is harder to do. And as much as possible, I, I think Aptos has done a good job at starting to do more of that because everybody's trying to find, all right, what's this chain do versus this chain? How's it different from my L2 or L3? Uh, so as much as you guys can continue to write and also, I mean, one for engineers, I, I think everybody likes the research papers, uh, the smaller community likes the research papers, but, uh, also the human readable kind of translation of what that actually means for everybody else, uh, I think is important to keep driving forward. Yeah. We'll do our best to keep writing research papers as well as the kind of higher level papers that give people the gist of what's going on. I think we've. We, you know, we recognize those are two different audiences and, and it's worth doing the, the dual efforts of kind of writing for those different audiences and always happy to do that. Maybe the one thing I'll, I'll say is like going back to parallelism, you know, we, we talked last time a lot about block STM and getting kind of the implicit parallelism from the programmer without having to do anything explicit there. And that's been something that, you know, you know I think we talked also at that time that we'd see others hopefully doing the same thing in the space. And we're really excited to see that others are adopting the same techniques of block STM whether it's going to be Polygon or, or what Say has announced recently or what Monad is doing. And I think that, you know, it kind of shows an in industry that, you know, once we kind of do these things, others will also pick up the same ideas and kind of follow in that, those footsteps. And so definitely like to see that validation market. Um, the other thing we're going to be doing uh, in the coming, you know, you know, coming months or years or whatever as well is explore the pessimistic parallelism. So making programmers work a little bit harder to kind of, Specify more about what they're doing uh, in their actions uh, would allow uh, for for other opportunities in parallelism to be done as opposed to block STM uh, optimistic parallelism type techniques. And we'll still be exploring those as well. And so now from a program perspective, that kind of gives you two avenues in which to explore parallelism. One, you write your code by default. It does great. It, it, it exploits the parallelism necessary and you're very happy with it. Two, you, you want to go a little bit deeper and harder into things. You can go ahead and kind of, uh, you know, a good example would be like you can write your SQL query. It's going to be great. It's going to work well for Spark or for Hive. Um, now, underneath the covers, though, if you don't like the way that the query optimizer developed that plan, you can go and decide what you want to do in your, you can take the stages apart, you can rewrite them and to do a you know, sort, join, uh, merge, or you can go ahead and decide, I want to do a map only merge on uh, this process. And so the more control we give to the programmers and the covers to do things uh, that allow them for more finer grain optimization is going to be, going to be helpful, potentially. Um, and so that's a very interesting area of exploration for us going forward to kind of, you know, going back to a very uh, famous quote, uh, you know, make easy, easy things easy and hard things possible um, uh, when it comes to parallelism. So that's, I think, a, a really exciting direction for us going forward as well. I love it. Yeah, I'm, it's, I'm curious, like, when you go down the parallelism rabbit hole, kind of stating those dependencies up front versus allowing kind of the block STM, it's super nice from the engineering point of view to not be able to state those dependencies. Uh, right. But by giving the extra flexibility, you upfront know which contracts you can paralyze versus not, at least initially in the first pass, uh, yeah. having that flexibility is nice. It is, it is. And so that will kind of allow permits to kind of pick and choose their their preference. And, um, and also... It is. It's also not clear whether you know. Like, it's even better, by the way, to have programmer specify the upfront. Because again, I can try to query optimize my SQL query. Like, I can go and try to redo things better than the optimizer did. But sometimes I'm gonna get it wrong. Like, and yeah. uh, and sometimes you know I might just be overcomplicating things and not not doing the, you know what the core optimizer can do for me. Uh, and so, I think that choice is really important for making sure we get the most efficient use of that the system. Makes sense. I give people the option. Yeah. In terms of like hard questions that people have uh, either asked you at the community level or even privately in terms of uh, like the Aptos community or from an engineering perspective, are there any difficult questions that uh, you get repeatedly that 
come up uh, that you could answer here? <laughs> I think we covered a lot of them, to be honest. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any others that we did not One cover. general feedback that I hear, and I think Solano went through this, pretty much all new L1s outside of the Ethereum ecosystem kind of go through is like being labeled alt L1 or... Uh, historically, because now chains can't do ICO and have to comply with regulations that they've taken VC money and now they're VC chains. How would you kind of address people that think those incorrect thoughts uh, about like the Aptos ecosystem and really differentiating Aptos itself from other high throughput ecosystems in the market? That's a great question. I think one of the ways that question could be answered is actually by looking at the tokenomics of, of the Aptos network. Um, it has one of the lowest uh, investor kind of uh, allocations, I think, of any any uh, any launch uh, for L01. Uh, and also, I think for the community bucket, um, also one of the highest uh, allocation of tokens for the community bucket. So I think that would be one way to think about it. The other thing is, of course, from the tokenomics perspective, there's a 10-year lockup on most of the tokens out there. Uh, and so this is a community that's built for the long run. Um, I think those are some of the, some of the things that could hopefully address those, those concerns. Yeah. Perfect. Well, maybe we can wrap it there, Avery, uh, unless there's anything else we didn't cover. No, I think we went through a lot. Um, and, uh, it's always a pleasure to, to chat Logan. Likewise, we got to make, uh, this, uh, a yearly thing because I thoroughly enjoy them. <laughs> Same here.